Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The one boundary to be aware of is once you cross over into like actually earning money from it, you really do need to stand on your own two feet. When it becomes more than just like, this is something that you're interested in, and it changes into something that this is you, where you derive your income from. You know, you have to sort of pay respect to the people in the industry that you share space with. Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer, and this is Clever. And today we're talking to furniture designer, Jeff Martin of Jeff Martin Joinery. He was born and raised in Canada and his youthful passion for adventure and sports like skateboarding and snowboarding resulted in a tragic accident that changed the course of his life for the better. He's recently course corrected yet again and is full of enthusiasm and excitement about new discoveries and inventing new processes for his designs. Let's hear more from Jeff. My name is Jeff Martin and I am a contemporary furniture designer from Canada uh, based out of Vancouver. I think that the work that we are doing and making is sort of in great reverence for elemental materials and how to respond to the material characteristics of those inputs that we have in kind of like unique, uh, obscure or invented ways. We are going to get back to all of those words, unique, obscure, mm-hmm. invented, elemental. Right. <laughs> I love it. But before yeah. we get there, we got to go all the way back to where the tree was planted, the Jeff Martin tree I'm talking about. So mm-hmm. where did you grow up? And let's understand, like, your family dynamic, your hometown. What kind of kid were you? I was not the uh, picture-perfect kid at all. But I was uh, I was born in Edmonton, uh, which is uh, a town in the north and just to the east of the Rocky Mountains for any non-Canadians, which is primarily now sort of like an oil and gas town in Canada. And uh, I have a twin sister. My parents decided after about six weeks that they weren't going to raise us in Edmonton. So they put us in a van and started driving west towards the coast. And I think after a year or so, we kind of like landed and settled in Vancouver is where our family put down roots. How old were you at that time? Yeah, I would have been one, I guess. Oh, okay. 18 months, maybe. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, I was really raised in Vancouver. And so I spent all my youth there. I eventually, when I was older, I, I moved out east for school. But yeah, I kind of was raised a little bit just in this one part of Vancouver to the the north side of this, the um, Lionsgate Bridge um, in between my mom's house and my dad's house uh, in West Vancouver and North Vancouver, respectively. And so sort of like on the side of the mountain. And I kind of like spent a lot of time as a really young kid running away from my sister who was like super hyperactive and really, really wanted to hang out with me. And I was kind of like a little bit shy and quiet and I was really bookish. So I was just sort of like big into books and being alone. And then as I sort of like grew up a little bit, I really took to um, skateboarding. I was kind of like raised in the skate park in a way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, It was like really, really close to our house growing up. So Uh, And there was one really close to my dad's house. So I kind of like made fast friends with a lot of the kids at the skate park. And that was really where I spent a lot of my time. And yeah, my sister and I are very close, but we're definitely like two completely different people, despite being twins. Mm -hmm. Um, Laurel is really, really, really focused and intelligent. 
and I'm kind of like just a little, little bit more of a goofball and probably like a little bit quieter in some ways than than Laurel is. But uh, yeah, we're we're still very close. And Laurel Laurel's core like she's traveled around the world now, and she's set down her own roots. She's she's now married to a really wonderful man, uh, Mikey Scottish, and they've set down roots on Vancouver Island uh, in Duncan. And so it's kind of nice that they've of all the places in the world that they've you know traveled to and lived. Um, they're quite close to us now. We we live uh, in North Vancouver now. My wife and my daughter and I. I'm really curious about this childhood in the skate park, also half of a twin system. And it sounds mm-hmm. like uh, there was a divorce if you sp- split your time between your mom's house and your dad's house. So yeah, what, what can you tell us about the emotional tone of your childhood? Oh, it was super, super adventurous. I think really okay. uh, there's like a lot of love in our family and definitely like the, the divorce was, um, I mean, even as children, when it happened, we could like see it was the best thing for our parents. And mm-hmm. so it was a really, really positive upbringing, I would say. We also have like a lot of family out east. And so when I was growing up, my grandparents, both sets and one set of aunt and uncles and their kids were in Toronto um, and northern Ontario. We'd spend a lot of time up in the north, this place called Deep River, where my grandparents had a cottage. And so it was just sort of this like cute little um, bungalow type of cottage on a sandbank on a river and it was just pretty bucolic and ideal for kids to go kind of adventure and explore. Um, we have some family on the far east coast just outside of Antigonish in, in Nova Scotia so sort of close to Halifax. One of my cousins is a farm vet, the other one is a lobster fisherman. One of them went to go work in the oil and gas fields in Alberta and is now back in Nova Scotia again. But I guess kind of like growing up, we had a almost like cross Canada experience. We spent a lot of time, not just in BC, but sort of like across many of the different provinces, uh, which is really great. I remember being like really, really impacted by going out to the, the East Coast, out to the Maritimes. And I don't know if just being like obsessed with how cool my older cousins were, but I every time we'd go out there, I'd like develop a little bit of a Halifax or Nova Scotia accent like I was just like super into how cool they were and so uh, uh we have a really close family um and even since my parents split that has kind of like continued and it, it might seem weird but some of my stepbrothers on stepsisters on one side of the family like on my dad's side will come and spend time with the stepbrothers and stepsisters and us and the parents on the other side as well so it's like it's not like we're one big giant happy split family, but there's like a lot of kind of fluid dynamism between all the people there. Like we all love each other. And so the divorce wasn't like this for me anyways, it was not like a a really, really like heavy emotional thing that I went through. I very much see that it was like a good thing for both my parents. I think my sister had a harder time with it, Mm. but maybe that's just because I was a boy who's just like obsessed with skateboarding and, um, you know, pretty like <laughs> mono focused <laughs> has been like the, I guess the way that I have always been when I was like two years old, I think I, somebody gave me like a plastic fire helmet as a Christmas present. And I didn't take it off until I was five. And like, that's what I wanted to do was be a fireman. And then when I was like five, I like learned how to draw and I was obsessed with hockey, but really focused in this one little area of hockey masks like goalie masks and at the time they were all i mean they're probably still done the same way but like with airbrush airbrush paint and stuff like that and so i would like draw hockey masks and i was like convinced i was going to be an airbrush artist for hockey teams when i was an adult and then like that kind of passed and i got really into skateboarding and i kind of skateboarded through all my youth and then found snowboarding and surfing and kind of like down this like long line of really being like focus only able to focus on one thing at a time um found myself in furniture i guess so i want to ask about your creativity because it sounds like you found drawing so what else were you interested in creatively as a kid or, or did you even explore that at all after you were drawing the hockey masks you know i was i was as i said i was like really really bookish and so I would read a lot. I remember in grade two, I got in big trouble. So it was like, we just had these first, you know, the first editions of the computers in 
Canadian elementary schools. And one of our tasks as like a, a seven-year-old or eight-year-old was to write a, a small story. And I didn't un at the time understand punctuation at all, but I wrote what would have been like a 12 or 13 page story for like a, somebody in grade two, that would have been like writing Ulysses or something. <laughs> like, I wrote this huge thing and it's 12 pages long. It probably made no sense, but I just remember it had, it was one sentence. It was a single, it was just a single long winded sentence. I remember I got in trouble and uh, well, I didn't get in trouble, but I perceived it as trouble and I, I had to go back home and like learn you know, where to put periods. And I just, it, I just didn't get it. I put a, you know, I edited that, that story and I just put a period at the end of every line, every physical line, <laughs> even if it was the middle of a thought, I would put a period at the end of it. And, you know, we got coupled up uh, into groups of two and we had to go read our stories to kids in grade one. So I, I was coupled up with this guy, Chase, um, who's still a, a longtime friend. Uh, and we had to like read our stories and I remember he was sort of going through something similar. And anyways, I ended up kind of like in grade two being a bit of a dropout. Like I would stop going to my classes and I'd just go hide on the playground. Um, there was this big old wooden boat uh, in the woods next to the playground. and I'd go hide in there. And after a while, um, my teacher, Mrs. Dyke, she ended, ended up coming to my parents' house after school one day when I was there and like didn't announce it. She just showed up and, you know, I was like, incredibly remorseful and full of tears and I was like a grade two dropout <laughs> like um, but I really loved to write and so I think that was the next transition that I went through and then in high school I ended up started taking some video production courses and again one of the the kids that I would like group up with was this guy Chase again and another friend Brian too like I'm, I'm really close with and he's got a daughter about the same age as our kid um, and we actually live just a couple blocks away from each other now. Um, but we do video production work. And it was almost like at that time when I first took it, it was like an excuse to get out of school again because we it was like an extremely long block program. I remember it being like two or three hours long each class instead of just an hour. And you were allowed to go off school premises to go shoot. And so we just used it as an excuse to go get out of school. I think looking back on it now to build stories and edit work and create like a visual documentation of how you were thinking about a story. So I, I was really into that through all of high school. Actually, Chase, Chase has gone on now. And so Chase has taken like what he learned there and obviously from a lot of life experiences, but he's like, he was the director of cinematography for the Lemonade video from Beyonce a couple oh, years ago. Wow. And he did like the Black Klansman with uh, Spike Lee. And he's like actually built a career in this path. Yeah, it's kind of cool. So those high school years doing video production and, and story building, you know, it's interesting to me that you connected your run-on sentence story from the second grade to being an escapist, sort of, hiding in this boat to video production in high school. And I want to know where you went after high school, but I also want to circle back to that boat at some point because mm -hmm. that boat made an imprint on your psyche and... Oh, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> it was a pretty dirty place. You know, that boat was like full of rats and needles. <laughs> like It was uh, it was a last ditch resort to like go hide there to to be a grade two dropout for sure. And I was kind of like running scared at that time. I, I don't know how to describe that feeling, but I, I kind of like remember grade two as being like this kind of scared, unhinged type of year in my life. So interesting. What did you do after after high school? Because we want to figure out how you got from video production to furniture making. And so there's a few dots you need to connect for us. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was saying as, as well, like I was really into skateboarding um, and through skateboarding, then into some snowboarding and some surfing. Um, so I really felt like that was a, a really physically creative thing for me to do. Whereas like all about um, like twitch reactions and and kind of like analyzing and coming up with responses like gestural responses in the moment mm -hmm. um, and I think that ha has had like an effect on my career in the long run as well but um, when I got to university uh, I really had no idea what I was gonna do I almost didn't go mm -hmm. my parents encouraged me I was sort of like set I was like oh you know I'm just gonna move to the mountains and be a snowboard bum and I'll probably die by the time I'm 30. And that was going to be my life. But they encouraged me to at least apply to a couple schools. And um, I didn't have the best grades. 
I applied to a few schools that my sister had applied to, and I got like, you know, completely rejected by all of them. Um, but one really small school accepted me and gave me a scholarship to go there with like my 65% grade average. So I kind of was like, well, this is a sign. I should probably go do this. Um, they're the only people that would accept me. And they gave me a scholarship to go. So I ended up going to that school and I, I enrolled in business and it was, you know, I just kind of followed what my dad had suggested for me. Cause I had no idea what I wanted to do. Perhaps in the long run, that was a good, a good move. But at the time, I think I wrestled with it a lot. But anyways, in, in university, in the first year, I ended up having a really bad accident where I broke my back. Ah. And yeah, and that was, um, I, I look back on that as being like one of the best things that's probably happened to me in my life. Was that um, a sports related accident? Yeah, it was a sports related accident. I, you know, I was just sort of <laughs> showing off to some girls I was snowboarding with. <laughs> um and yeah, I was just kind of being a an, a stupid eighteen year old, but I was it was a pretty serious injury. So I yeah. I um had a burst fracture of my L four, so down in the lower part of your back where your diaphragm is hinged to. Um, I I lost that vertebrae uh, through this accident, and uh, so I've got a fused spine. And at the time, I had lost all motor function below my waist, so I was paralyzed. Oh man! Uh, and in a wheelchair for a while. And the, the recovery was really slow. Um, on top of that, I, I had about my sixth concussion through that same injury, like a tendency of getting banged up. <laughs> so I had like got hurt several times before, but this was fairly serious. And I kind of, I lost a lot of cognitive ability at the, like temporarily and at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it has come back, I hope. <laughs> but um, it was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. And really kind of made me go, well, this is, this is my life and I should be probably pursuing things that I want to do. Is that why you describe it as the best thing that happened to you? Because it, it yeah, helped you definitely. put things in focus? I mean, yeah, it, definitely. Okay. And I think for me, like college was sort of a blip. I never found my feet in college, despite that happening, like in first year and I had every opportunity to go, oh, this is what I'm going to do. But, I, you know, at the time I was not thinking about career. But I guess losing the ability to go skateboard and snowboard and surf and, and do the sort of like fun, creative, gestural outlets that I like typically had at my fingertips, I ended up starting to write a little bit. So I, I would just like write to letter, write letters to friends back home. I got more into reading again and and sort of like creatively writing and that sort of thing. And I really fell in love with being able to to produce creative work without any sort of material input or anything like that, just like, you know, an urge to, to put something down, to put a thought down. Mm -hmm. um, and that was sort of something that I just like really, really stuck with me. And it's still something I, I'm really passionate about, but don't have tons of time to do at the moment. And I would like to let that back into my life again. But kind of after I graduated from university, I, I started to feel like I found my voice in my writing. And so, you know, I would sort of work odd jobs. I, I applied for a couple of jobs in offices out of university just to make good of my degree, but I didn't get anything. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Clever is supported by Tools and Weapons, the podcast hosted by Microsoft Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. 
A recent episode took Brad to Venice, where he connected with Eve Ubelman, a partner whose company, Econem, has developed a game-changing technique for creating digital architectural models so comprehensive they've been dubbed twins. During the relative quiet of the pandemic, Eve and his team used drone-captured photography and powerful AI to create a full-scale digital twin of Venice, a city threatened by climate change and over-tourism. On tools and weapons, Eve tells Brad how he's using this incredible technology to help preserve some of the world's most endangered cultural heritage sites in pristine detail so they can be studied and appreciated for generations to come. To stay current on some of the most innovative people working with AI today, follow or subscribe to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Support for Clever comes from Wix Studio. Instead of reading you another, let's be honest, boring ad script, Wix Studio just sent me this wild-looking Alice in Wonderland-themed website to scroll through and tell you about. So, whoa. This is not the web I'm used to. There's something called mouse parallax, which makes it feel like you can go deeper into the screen. And as I scroll down, it's like I'm falling down the rabbit hole and things are moving in depth and perspective. Even my cursor has morphed into a glowing little orb. There are all these no-code animations that make this place feel organic and alive. And Alice is wearing some pretty cool shoes, by the way. Okay, I know I'm mixing up my narratives now, but we are definitely not in Kansas anymore. Your turn to go down the rabbit hole. Build your next web project on Wix Studio, the platform for agencies and enterprises. Hey, clever listeners, we're getting excited for New York Design Week in May. This year will be better than ever. ICFF, North America's leading platform for contemporary design, will take place from May 19th to the 21st at the Javits Center in New York City. I'll be there, and I'm excited to let you know how Clever is collaborating with ICFF for Launchpad at Wanted, formerly known as Wanted Design Manhattan, and the Emerging Designer Showcase. Launchpad is an international platform for emerging designers that introduces new concepts and showcases prototypes of furniture, home accessories, and lighting. It is the best place for manufacturers to meet new designers, discover fresh ideas, and potential products to develop. The best of Launchpad winners will be selected by a jury of renowned industry professionals, led by yours truly. And they will go on to be featured in another edition of the popular Emerging Designers Showcase. I'll be leading the Emerging Designers Showcase live on the talk's main stage, where the five Launchpad finalists will have a chance to present their projects to our esteemed panel of professionals. It's always a really good time. So mark your calendars for Sunday, May 19th at 4 p.m. Both Launchpad and the Emerging Designer Showcase are presented with media partners Clever, that's us, and Design Milk, and with support from American Standard and Lumens. Visit icff.com to learn more and register to attend. Those are the letters icff.com. Come by and say hi. I would love to see you there. I got a degree in business. Okay. I, you know, I, I applied to work for uh, like a heli ski operation in BC to do the marketing for them. And I got shortlisted right down to like the second last candidate. And then they ended up going with somebody else, but I could have, you know, ended up being working like up in Northern British Columbia for like a, like a luxury ski operator if I had not gotten rejected by them, um, which was kind of, it's kind of crazy that my life is just looking back on it, I guess could have gone so many different ways. Mm -hmm. And I guess at that time I was just like, you know, I'd, I'd like to work with my hands a little bit. Um, Cause I didn't grow up with particularly proficient mom or dad who could like fix stuff around the house very easily or anything. You know, my dad was kind of like afraid of his tool, tool bench and almost every time I saw him try to work on something, he would get electrocuted. So <laughs> I kind of was like, you know, it'd be kind of cool to like learn how to work with my hands. And so I was working sort of labor jobs for a while, right after school, doing landscaping and doing labor jobs around job sites and some sort of like basic carpentry stuff and basically saving up as much money as I could to go travel. 
You know, the body's such a fascinating machine, but it sounds to me like this accident, your brain trying to heal itself encouraged you to start putting the ideas that were coming through it down onto the page. And then you are out in the world doing these these handyman jobs and these and these uh, contracting carpentry jobs because your body's needing to find its connection to the material world again. Is that mm-hmm. would you say that that is all part of your development? A hundred percent. I'd say it's all part of the development. And I think also my writing and my need to write at that time was because I was in a really emotionally fragile state. And so like my emotions were at the time, like really brimming. Yeah. You um, needed to process that shit, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I needed to process it. And through writing is how I did it. And then I got really into it and I was like, Oh, you know what? There's like a really cool sort of creative life that I had not considered before, you know, as I went down this trajectory of business school, I was like, well, I'm just going to get a job in an office and that's it. And then I kind of realized my passion was in producing work or my own work or something with my voice in it. Yeah. You know, uh, it's amazing when you find that valve and you open it up and then just mm. allow it to flow. It feels almost like you're breathing again and you didn't even realize yeah. you were suffocating. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. At that time, you know, I, I was just saving. I really wanted to travel. So I kind of like saved up for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went on a trip through Central and South America. And I really just like found that I love to write about my experiences there. And so I just write frenetically every every single day I was on that trip. I, I would write. It was pretty like eye opening. I had like a lot of people, you know, I just basically I, I would just like write to people back home. Mm. Um, and I, I kept at the time, like a little travel blog. So my parents could like see what we we're up to and my friends could see where we were and that sort of thing. But I really sort of like took it and ran with it, um, about how I wanted to express myself. And some of it was like pretty weird, <laughs> but it was like really, it was really cool. And I kind of realized through that whole experience and through that, that I wanted to be a writer. And so I got home and I had like no experience. I didn't go to school for English or anything or creative writing, but I, sort of landing a couple um freelancer gigs as a, a travel surf writer real quick did you were you still putting the periods at the end of every physical line yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i still have problems with punctuation <laughs> yeah my wife uh she insists on editing like every email i send because i'm terrible with punctuation oh but... <laughs> you found a nice match then for you yeah, yeah Somebody... she's great <laughs> yeah um no i still have problems with that but uh i yeah i ended up doing some amateur paid writing for a while and i i really really enjoyed it but i still just loved the creative side of writing the most and but it was nice to sort of be able to see that you know i could earn a little bit of money from this thing that i was just interested in and i think it gave me like a lot of confidence too to come into almost fall backwards into a little bit of a career path with no formal training so to come in as an outsider but still have enough of a voice that it mattered enough that somebody was going to pay me to put uh, a, you know, a small article together on something that I was interested in. Um, I think that kind of played into my confidence in inserting the furniture as well, but I got sent on a, a trip by um, surf Canada and another magazine out of Europe to go to grain surfboards out of Maine and write about my experience building a like a handmade wooden surfboard ah. in their studio there uh, and I camped on the property for a week and the, I mean the, the whole company everybody there is just so incredible it's like that maritime spirit that I I love about where my aunts and uncles and um, cousins are from Maine is just like Nova Scotia's neighbor so I just felt at home there and I really love the process of making these like handcrafted wooden surfboards um I got home and I was like, oh, I should be doing something like this. And so I started renting some space at, uh, you know, like a big art studio area in Vancouver. Um, And I was working as a carpenter uh, to pay the bills. And I really loved the carpentry aspect of it, too, from like framing to formwork and pouring concrete to finishing carpentry. I just really loved getting into that idea of like maybe one day being able to build my own house um, or just in general, I, I liked the, the tempo of the day and the people I was working with. 
and yeah, I was doing the writing as well and working, you know, odd jobs. I was doing like uh, house inspections as well. I just like pretty much everything to support like these multiple ideas I was juggling about like having a life of like being able to work with my hands and be creative as well and make money from my creative side. And then my wife just asked me, she's like, oh, I was like making some surfboards and paddles in my workshop. And she's like, oh, can you make some furniture for our apartment? And I was like, oh, sure. Like I never considered it, but you know, having being uh, in construction and like building stuff for like, you know, building houses. So like building something in relation to a domestic life, getting into furniture then was really easy transition. And I started off as just like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do that. And I started like, you know, going online, buying some books about furniture designers. And I found this one on George Nakashima and I was just like, this story is incredible about how, you know, he learned how to do this in an internment camp. And he went on to become this like incredible influence over modern design through his work. Mm -hmm. And I was just so, so inspired by that story and about how his daughter Mira now does it. And it sort of like continued on and expanded on the idea of what her father's studio was. And I just was like, well, that's it. Like I'm now I'm going to try to make some Nakashima style tables. And I just was like, looked at all the proportions in the books. And I started making like, you know, his Conway dining tables, but made like a coffee table version for my wife and doing all the butterfly keys and all like, you know, the, all the little nuanced details you would find in a Nakashima piece. I was trying to imbue them into my own work and I just started making work, you know, akin to that, mm -hmm. akin to the American craft movement, uh, modern, mid-century modern movement. And then um, it kind of just like went from there. Uh, it took a while for me to find my own voice as a designer. But again, I came in it from the outside where I didn't know I wasn't allowed to just take somebody else's ideas and, and sell them. Um, I, I had no idea. Right. No, I understand that. I also think that in painting, there was always a very um, rich tradition of copying the masters as a way of learning mm -hmm. craft and technique. And I think that there's yeah, a right. natural tendency to do that, maybe just to learn the process. And I'll say from personal experience, like it takes a while to get enough of a technical repertoire with wood and all the processes and materials and joinery in order to feel like you really can express yourself uniquely. The first chapter of learning to work with wood is really learning how the material behaves and learning what you can do with it and what's structurally sound and how you can manipulate it with which machines before you can decide how your own voice gets expressed through the material. So like teaching yourself by making work similar to the people that you were inspired by seems like a very natural way to teach yourself to make furniture. And yeah, then of uh, course... Yeah. As you become more sophisticated, you realize, oh, um, well, I guess what I'm doing is derivative and mm -hmm. and it's time for me to start making it a little more Jeff Martin-ish. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think another thing, too, is like I'm so surprised I didn't cut off my fingers. <laughs> like right. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I was like working in the shop um, at like two in the morning and working two jobs to support this. So I get there at like one or two in the morning and work and then go to sleep for a couple hours and go to my job again. And kind of the years from like 24 to 27, I just like didn't really sleep very much. I was just so obsessed with like learning how to how to build things. And I was making crazy technical mistakes and safety mistakes and I guess like industry mistakes. But that's, you know, for somebody who, who approaches things as an outsider, some of that stuff like you just have to go through. I'm not denying your outsider status, but mm -hmm. I am I am saying that, like, I went through the academic route, so I might be the insider that you're referring to. Right. Those mistakes are part of the journey. Like, one oh, of the totally. things that I learned oh. so hardcore is that the depth of your skill is not how well you do it the first time it's how well you can compensate for a mistake that happens mid project and how you can course correct and 
making those mistakes is very much both an insider and outsider thing. We probably had more safety guidance than you did yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think the mistakes are really, really important part of the technical repertoire because I'm sure you feel like you learned so much and maybe even so much that's a little bit off book um, about yeah. how to make things that's informed your process. So, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, could... there was not for, for me, there was not like a, like a little hand handbook or a really like in-depth multi-volume encyclopedia of how I should approach what I was trying to do. I was just trying to, to make work that I thought was interesting. And I think the, the one boundary to be aware of, is once you cross over into like actually earning money from it, you really do need to stand on your own two feet. Yeah. Um, when it when it becomes more than just like this is something that you're interested in, and it changes into something that this is you where you derive your income from. Yeah. Then that is like a fairly blurry but tenuous line, and you know you have to sort of pay respect to the people in the industry that you share space with. And I think a lot of people have gone through growing pains like this and. Wait, what, certainly... what are you getting at? Are you talking about not not making work that's too similar? Are you? Yeah, yeah. I, I personally have tried to make work similar to other people, mm-hmm. and now I now I have people who reach out and they're like, "Oh, this guy's doing work like yours," or I'll have some, some person be like, "Hey, I made a bed just like yours." So I kind of I kind of see it from both sides now, mm-hmm. and. I, I kind of like the way that I have wrestled with it and tried to define it in my head is or justify it is that like if you're really deriving like principal source of income for, for yourself, you really need to be doing work that is um, your own. And but if it's like a hobby or something like that, I think you just just be nice, you know, just like reach out to people before mm-hmm. you make the thing and be like, hey, I'm, I'm making this for my wife or I'm making this for a client, but it's not going to go on my website. And I think that's that's like an appropriate way to to deal with that sort of thing. Yeah, um, I agree with you that that copycat. It's like it's not quite knocking off, but it's it's copycat work that eats into your niche in the industry if they're not being mm-hmm. respectful about it. If it's because they're teaching themselves how to build furniture, like you did with copying, you know, Nakashima esque making things akin to Nakashima, mm-hmm. it's sort of one thing if it's for their personal use. But we're in this culture now where people see work on Instagram and Pinterest and assume that it's a recipe it's like a recipe they can follow and then if they make it then they assume they can make money from it and now they're just sort of diluting um the original idea the original idea and causing confusion for a lot of people but also not you're right not paying Mm -hmm. respect to the economics and the originality that need to support the whole industry yeah, I think one person that like I derive like a lot of inspiration from, may- maybe not so much in the way our look works, but in the approach to our work, is Steve Hollenbeek. Mm. And for anybody who doesn't like know Steven's work, look it up. He's incredible. He's my favorite designer. He does these ice cast bronze pieces that are yeah, just yeah, and yeah. he's like, I kind of like look at him and. I think like if I were to liken him to like any fictional story character, I look at him and I think of like the hunchback of Notre Dame because he is, his studio is perched about, it's like 2,500 square did feet. Did you just call Steve Hollenbeek I Quasimodo? Did. I hope he listens to this too. <laughs> I hope he listens to this. But he, it's like his studio is like perched above. It's like a very humble, but well-organized, beautiful studio perched above a 35,000 square foot art boundary that his friend owns. And if you look at Steve's like body of work, he's using ice and snow from like on top of his studio. Like he opens the window and goes out onto the roof. He's using wax, which is like found down in the casting rooms below him. He's using sand, which are found down in the sand casting areas below him. He's using glass down from the glass blowing facility below him. And he's sort of like, he's like building this body of work that is just like, sort of like, I imagine him with like a mop almost like going through West supply foundry after hours and be like, Hmm, I could like make, you know, a crazy mushroom bubble vessel out of like resin bonded sand or something. And he's just like, 
it's this like closed system um, of really experimental research based design. And I just, there's so much to learn where he's able to make like the most out of the least type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I like, I love design practices like that. And I, you know, I have my own body of work now. I'd say like the last two years, we've really gotten into this like experimental type of design process. And I've talked at length with people like Steve about it because I want to make sure that the stuff that I'm doing isn't stepping on anybody else's toes in that area. Mm -hmm. And so if I make like a blown glass vessel, you know, I'm, I'm doing these excavated vessels now. One of the ones I made for my wife almost looked like the way that I did it almost looked like this Julian Watts, um, who's this incredible sculptor from the Bay Area. It almost looked like one of his perforated towers. And so I reached out to Julian. I was like, hey, man, like I just did this piece and I kind of like now I'm looking at it and realize like it's different materials and different effect, but it kind of looks like one of yours. And he had like this beautiful response to me, which is like, reiterating what I've been saying, which is like, yeah, like you should be doing work. Like it's beautiful, but you should be doing work that is like so weird and strange that like it can only be yours. Mm-hmm. And I kind of love that sentiment. And like his response was um there was like brevity to it, but it was also very direct and very, very kind. Mm-hmm. And um I think that's sort of what it's about right now is is because we're in this like Instagram influenced era of ideas almost becoming homogenous yeah that as like a designer or like an upstart somebody right out of school or somebody just falling into it reach out to like all the people that you look up to like I love talking to other designers and students and people who are like way better than me like I love those conversations and so I would really encourage like more dialogue between us um so there's less drama I guess (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk to you a little bit about that idea of Instagram because Instagram can give people the sense of you as a brand being some large operation or Mm -hmm. factory or something like that. And you've recently talked a little bit on Instagram about the fact that you are sometimes a one man operation. um, Yeah. And that there's, a lot that goes into the work, but also that it's not always what it seems in, in terms of like financial success or, um, you know, having a giant team, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about some of those struggles? A hundred percent. Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of us in the industry, you you know, I'm not, I don't want to like call anybody out who is trying to, um, appear, you know, like really big and successful, but I've talked openly with with other people about this and well it's not even like people trying to appear that way it's just the nature of being on instagram and like having a body of work some people are like oh you have a lot of followers you must be like super successful or people will like look at it and be like oh you get to make all the work that you design or you get to do exactly what you want to do and you know they don't consider oh maybe there's like financial backing behind that company or maybe they're not showing uh the other portion uh, or fraction of their work that it supports the studio practice or, and I kind of, yeah, I, we've been through ups and downs in our business. And very recently there's sort of like just this culmination of, I think like a lot of different influences that made me go back to where I was size wise, like five years ago. And so I had to lay off my two employees and lay off myself. We just got really dire. Like we burned through our nest egg, um, of our business quite quickly. And, you know, I was just basically looking at years prior and our growth in years prior. I was like, oh, for this year, for 2019, I set out a fairly ambitious budget for marketing, prototyping, and um, payroll. And the year started off just really, really poorly. And that's it. Like we had sort of six, seven months of insanely low sales. And so that sales funnel wasn't filled up, but I had this huge commitment um, via payroll, marketing, and prototyping that I couldn't really plug or just stop. The cogs in those machines were already rolling. And so without the sales to support, you know, like topping up our cash flow, we fairly quickly got into a situation that was pretty dire, you know, like 
I was having, I, I mean, all, I think all business owners have it, but sleepless nights and that sort of thing. Um, and I'm, I'm a little bit prone to panic attacks and that. And so I was just like right on the verge of having a little bit of a meltdown. And thankfully I talked to my father-in-law, Andrew, about this. And I just sort of like confided in him what was going on. And he was like, just get back to the core of what you do. You're going to have to let go of people. You're not going to be able to pay yourself. You're not going to be like looking at bankruptcy with your current, current conditions, but you have like a solvency issue where you've got a lot of, a lot of debt and commitments and accounts payable and not so much accounts receivable coming in. It was pretty dire for, for a while there. And I'm very proud to say that like we're climbing out of it now and that I've got, um, my guys have been like really, really not my guys anymore, but the guys that I, you know, called my employees for the, the past five years are, have been really, really, um, really supportive as well about this situation and have gone on and found jobs, but being able to come in and work, um, as contractors to get some of the orders out, out the door, cause there's still orders to do and they're becoming more and more employed by our business again. And hopefully I can bring them back on as employees before the end of the year. But it was like a reset button back to where I was five years ago. And I thought I was over that. I thought I was like beyond that. So it was, it was a real challenge to, to have that ego shot, I guess. Yeah, but I think it's it's great and I think brave and also um, appreciated that you would come forward to talk about these things openly, you know, on this podcast and on Instagram, just to kind of get out there and say like, hey, look, you know, if you're struggling with this, like you're not alone, like this happens and this happened to me. Because I think some people are could, like someone listening right now could be ready to give up and then your advice to like go back to the core of like, what you love to do or who you are is really fantastic advice. And I mean, like, if you've got a skill set, you can make money and, you know, you don't have to give up on the dream because you've got like a slow financial time or, you know, but I think one of the core lessons as well in this whole situation, I guess, was to actually put, as you're saying, I like, I'm really happy I put it out there and I was really um, I had a lot of trepidation around putting it out there because, you know, I'm also very aware that as much as I love the industry and not everybody in this industry is also going to love me. And so I kind of felt that putting it out there could be risky too. you know, if competition wanted to strike, that was like a perfect time to strike. And Jeff, at times I, I felt Jeff, like the vultures Jeff, were circling see, too. Do you see this pattern? This is your, your accident again yeah and you found your recovery through writing yeah which i i found i and i've started writing more since this has happened i've started writing like quite a bit about i have a job and a mission for you yeah hit um, me i'm very serious about this you have a desire to unite the industry and create connective tissue and solidarity camaraderie and support among other people who are you know fighting the fight like you are Mm -hmm. You have a voice that you express yourself through writing and you have a natural ability to figure out how things get made and also work with the process. You need to either join some organizations and create content and a community that supports the maker industry that you're a part of, makers and artists and designers mm -hmm. and small business people or you need to start your own i think that's the way i'm leaning right now okay I, I do have like a back burner idea okay good which i would like to um you know i guess flesh out this idea that i've got but bring people into it and not as like necessarily for me as a for-profit type of thing but as something that is you know like self self-supporting self-sustaining um, and gives platforms to people. And I'm not sure what it really looks like, but it's something I really want to do. And so I think that like my career trajectory is going to be, it, I mean, it's pretty open-ended. I, I think probably Jamie and Amy, like you guys can tell that I kind of like just go with the flow. I um, I don't really set too many plans for myself, but I, I definitely love the industry that I'm in um, now. And I want to remain in it for a long time. And I, I would love that 
you know, if people continue to buy my work, that'd be great. But I think that there's going to be more as well. And I'm not sure exactly what that looks like yet, but that's something that I've been like thinking about a lot too. And that's what I've been writing about a lot as well recently. I mean, um, I, I, I see you as a maker and a designer for sure, but I, I, I can very much feel intuitively that there's a community organizer in you mm-hmm. that is able to harness your, your gift for, you know, making friends and writing in a way that really strengthens whatever it is you're passionate about. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. I've tried to do that like throughout my career as well. Like maybe at times a little bit too in like a sophomore sort of way. And so when I first discovered, for example, like when I first discovered Steve Hollenbeek's work, um, I definitely was not the first one to discover his work, but I I was one of the people who was like, dude, you know, I'm doing ICFF this year. Do you want to come and show your work for free? Just like come and do this with me because I, I want people to have like that platform. People whose work I believe in, I'm like totally open to just being like here. I think it does wonderful things for context, for showing our furniture with beautiful sculpture and other work or lighting um, mm-hmm. and stuff that we're not pursuing so vigorously. But I also like the core of it is that I love a lot of the work happening right now in the industry. I want to figure out how to take that sort of like sophomore idea of, you know, giving people a platform take it to like a real thing that like could really benefit people. So yeah, that's really nice to hear that you you're feel... for, you're starting a collective, <laughs> dude. You are. I would love to some sort of something. I'm, mm-hmm. you know, keep us posted because I want to see this as it happens and you do go with the flow, but I just want to remind you too, that like life is a spiral And when Mm -hmm. you look back at your life, I'm seeing some like, you know, some patterns. You sort of revisit places, but from a higher vantage point on the spiral. You're sort of winding around the mountain. And I Mm -hmm. do think that this business setback and your slow recovery and finding your voice through it is is very akin to your, your sports accident. And I think that's a good thing because you described that accident as the best thing that ever happened to you. So this business setback is the best thing that ever happened to you it's better than that accident when people we had like 500 emails phone calls from people being like you know thank you for sharing that story i think that the analogy that i've used to describe like what's happening to us right now is that like when you want to say like grow your muscles you need to do like a workout and that that workout will physically like tear your muscles to make them grow bigger and stronger and more adept and i think that's sort of what's happening right now is that we i got to a place of comfort and not like really looking at the financial controls of the business so much and it was just i mean we did a lot of i'm really proud of the work that we spent the money on which is great because i would i would probably just quit if i was like well I did it for nothing, but I'm very proud of what we spent the money on. Mm-hmm. And I hope that will take over to sales in the future. But it's it's sort of like you you need to like break things apart to to build them the right way again. And for me, like I don't think this is gonna be a journey of very clear cut, like, oh, this guy just started selling five million dollars worth of furniture a year and that's it. Now he's got a showroom in Manhattan and and London and whatever. It, I think it's for me, it's gonna be like way more fluid and like a lot of people I I think who may not be like the icon of our generation like we're still going to have great careers in it but we're going to have to like really analyze what we're doing to be prominent and to to be somewhat important in the industry as well and so I mean I just think that the the path to authentic success is never a straight line mm -mm, mm mm-mm I, I totally agree with you. Like the muscle analogy is a really nice one because it, it, you do have to break things apart to to make them stronger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's not like a formula. No. That's where your inventive yeah. processes are really going to serve you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you're super creative, so I'm sure you'll go with the flow and come up with the next solution to whatever problem or challenge that you have. I want to ask you about your process. We talked a little bit about how experimental you've been getting lately. Are there any other surprises or unique aspects of what you're doing that might be interesting to discover about what you've got going on? 
Yeah, I think I look at our processes as those are our designs. And so, you know, we have dozens and dozens of products out there, you know, like a bedside table in this design or in this process or a credenza in this process or a table in this process. We have like a lot of pieces that we do. But the way I like to think about our business is that it's five processes that I've designed. And so the pieces are almost just like a byproduct of the processes. The way that I like to think about it is each one is very much like its own identity and it doesn't bleed too much into the next. It's very contained and removed from the other processes that we invent, except for maybe one. But one of our most popular pieces in terms of sales is our painted credenza. And so I I really love that piece because it's super polarizing. We kind of joke at the studio that people hate them or they own one. And I, I love work that does that to people. Like there's no gray area, like, oh, maybe we could fit it in here or maybe we could. It's like very clear. People will be like right on the surface with us when they talk to us about those pieces. It's like, no, that's horrible or we love it. What's the price? And so... I, I love those pieces for that reason, like in the pure business side of it, I like it. But I think those pieces are also super gestural and really come back to the physical manipulation of things that I'm used to as like coming at this as sort of like this starry-eyed skateboard kid doing like whatever, like all of my stuff in my regular life outside of the studio, I consider like physically really creative. I like those pieces because they're just paintings. And they're not really paintings, but they are paintings. So I find the the painted work is really, really interesting. It's, it's proven to be one of our best sellers. Um, but I'm really, right now, I've been really into like discovering glass. And the excavated vessels have been really, really interesting for us. So this year we completed a residency at the Museum of Glass down in Tacoma. And we really got to sort of push the boundaries um, with what we were doing. And we really taking a scientific approach to working on this project specifically. So we, we basically come up with hypotheses for what could happen if we do X. And then we'll record the results. Um, and we measure everything from like glass temperatures to glass amounts to how much cork, how long. And each time we do one, we try to improve on, a, a pro- on the process or prove or disprove a hypothesis that we might have. And I think it's going to continue and lead us down a really interesting path with that work. And what I think what's interesting about me or to me specifically about this is the first time I've taken a really scientific approach about collecting data and having hypothesis about my work. Um, I think it's kind of like, like it's a heritage in a way for me, because my grandpa was a nuclear physicist. And so I have a really, really strong connection with this grandpa and with my Nana on this side. And he was a nuclear physicist who helped develop the nuclear program in Canada through like the 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, He he taught like PhD level ceramics at um, University of Toronto. And he's just like this incredibly warm guy. And also he made like live live edge furniture for my Nana in like the 60s. And it was probably like the first bit of furniture I, I ever connected with as a kid where I was like, Oh, this is so cool. This is like a slice of a tree. And so I kind of find it interesting now that I'm doing work, which is definitely not at the same level of science as what my grandpa, my, my grandpa would have been doing, but um, with the same objective approach to it. I love this grandpa. Yeah. Yeah. He's amazing. Yeah. yeah. What a, what a wonderful influence to have in your life. And I think there's mm-hmm. nothing more magical than being a child and, discovering like the wonder of furniture and the wonder of a tree and the wonder of your, you know, it being made by somebody, you know, all at the same time, like developing Mm -hmm. this really deep connection with that live edge table has definitely Mm -hmm. baked itself into your DNA. Yeah. I mean, the sense of discovery that I was like taught by him, he was just this like really gentle, kind, quiet observer. And so I remember going out, you know, in a canoe with him when I was really young in Northern Ontario, 
and kind of coming around the bend of this river and there's like this giant moose there and I was just really comfortable with him to have times of silence and observation I think that as you said like it's baked into my DNA I think having those experiences with my grandpa has really shaped you know who I am today and who I strive to be for my daughter as well we talked about the two times in your life when it could have been the best thing that ever happened to you, but we have to talk about your baby too, which could possibly also be one of the best things. Yeah, a hundred percent the best thing that's ever happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, how how has that changed you? How long ago? How old? How old is this baby? So yeah, um, my my daughter uh, B, she is ten and a half months old now. Oh, fresh, um, fresh baby. Fresh, yeah. So she'll be one in October. And she is, she's not dissimilar to me. She's also like very observant, kind of quiet. She loves books. She's almost got like a built-in divining rod. So if we're like in any place in the house, on the second floor or wherever, like somewhere away from her like little book stand, if I say the word books, she'll like point through the floor in the general direction to where the books are. Yeah, she's very focused. She loves her books. She loves playing. I mean, it's been amazing. It's been so amazing to transition into being a dad. I thought it was going to ruin my life and it's done the exact opposite. It's so incredible. It's made work uh, a little challenging at times because it's just like, how many hours in the day should I have in order to run a business and be like an active, involved parent as well? I went to two friends for advice um, before B came along. And one of them was like, just get prepared for the worst year of your life and the other guy was like it's super easy don't worry about anything and to be honest it's like it's both of those things it is the easiest most wonderful job in the world and it's also the the hardest fucking thing you could imagine <laughs> and so um i i call it the best worst thing that's ever happened to me <laughs> yeah exactly exactly and so i mean year one i don't know it's it's crazy but yeah I, we're my wife and i are just like loving most moments right now that's really joyful it's very mm-hmm. deeply human <laughs> i mean at, at, is, literally yeah. you you made another human yeah yeah no it's great it's great i'm really sort of touched and moved at this cycle of life stuff with uh, your grandfather and your Mm -hmm. child now and I'm fast forwarding to the future what do you hope that your grandpa years look like you know I I really do hope that I'm still physically able to and mentally capable of making like interesting furniture for a long time I I love the process of design and and fabrication and I want to continue doing this for as long as I, I can and I hope that you know, I also have time. I and not just in like my grandpa years, but that like throughout my daughter's life and if we have more kids, that I have time to be a dad as well. I think one of like the big things I wanna focus on in the future is maybe work that helps divert waste in general into functional, beautiful, culturally durable products. So I was really inspired by the discussion that you guys had with Greg Buckbinder from Emico. I love his approach to work and design and to how Emico can also serve as a function of diverting waste out of the oceans. I, I love that and would love to be able to engage in work that does something similar to that or it does exactly that or perhaps I can help produce work Somebody asked me like recently is like, what's your dream project? Um, and uh, I th- I answered really quickly and it's kind of funny, but I do think that the answer's got like some truth to it, to who I am. But I was like, oh, I'd love to design a chair that anybody in the world can grow out of mushrooms that costs $5 and is like edible and bio- biodegradable. And you don't have to ship anything. You just like, you know, you design like a system for somebody to make their own thing. I would love to get to a place in design where like, those sorts of things are possible and like design can be really accessible because right now we're doing like a lot of, a lot of work, which is focused on the luxury end. um, And we're starting to play more with the the middle range um, and more mass produced items. So, but I would really like to get it to a place where our mass produced items can have a societal benefit too. 
Well, hallelujah. That yeah. is. <laughs> I want a mushroom chair. I want a mushroom yeah. chair too. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Your first two orders. You guys owe me five bucks each. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you have going on that you want our listeners to make sure to be on the lookout for? Besides the mushroom chairs, we'll be involved in the show Temporal Arrangements at Egg Collective, um, opening October 4th or 5th and running for three months. Also in the show, some incredible photography from Jenna Westra, fiber arts from Amy Kim Keeler, um, Simone Bodmer-Turner, who's a sculptor, is showing work, and Roger Stevens, who I love his work. Um, he'll be showing there as well. So that's at Egg Collective. Our, our excavated vessels will be there, six of the ones that we produced at the Museum of Glass um, in Tacoma this year during our residency there. So really excited for that. And we have sort of, you know, of the five design systems that we've created, we're in 2020 going to be releasing more iterations of what those design systems can do and trying to go deeper into the process of each one. So I'm really excited for the, the painted work and typically the canvas for the painted credenzas, the painted objects has been credenzas, but we'd like to sort of expand on that idea to take up more 3D space. Right on. So we do want to direct our listeners also to find you on the web, to look at your work and on social media and definitely Instagram to read your writing and to see the posts that we mentioned earlier. So what are your social media handles and your website? Yeah. So our website is uh, jeffmartinjoinery.ca and our Instagram is, we have two. Uh, one is at jeffmartinjoinery and then the glasswork is under a separate handle. It's at excavated vessels. Well, thank you for sharing your story with us. We really enjoyed talking to you. Thanks, everyone, for listening. To see images of Jeff's work and read the show notes, click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. You can subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please rate and review us, it really helps us so much. We also love it if you would find us on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We're at Clever Podcast. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.